This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Anavarapu, and today I, along with my co-host Lakshita Malik, will be talking to Dr. Ramya Shri Kucha about her brand new book, The Dancer's Voice, Performance and Womanhood in Transnational India. The Dancer's Voice was published by Duke University Press in 2022, and Dr. Kucha is an assistant professor of music and women's studies at the University of Georgia. This is her first monograph. In this book, Dr. Pucha argues that the public persona of the Indian dancer has come to represent India in the global imagination, a representation that supports caste hierarchies and Hindu ethno-nationalism, as well as white supremacist model minority narratives. Both Lakshita and I really enjoyed reading this book, and we hope you really enjoy our conversation with Dr. Ramya Pucha. Hi, everyone. Now, this is very awkward, but welcome, Ramya. I'm so, so excited to have you on this episode. Um, also, hi, Sneha. Thank you for letting me thank you for letting me worm into the already arranged thing. I'm really happy to be here. I'm so, so excited to uh, get into this book. It was fantastic. I loved reading it. All right, Sneha, do you want to take the first question? I think, uh, Lakshita, you and I were referring to this as fangirl episode for good reason. We both, Ramya, we both loved Dancer's Voice and we were actually gushing about it um, separately the other day. Um, so we can't wait to gush about it with you today. <laughs> but, uh, you know, before we get into the book itself, it would be great to start our conversation with you, telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, I would also, you know, want to know um, how you got into the discipline of ethnomusicology to begin with, your journey in academia and so on. Sure. Well, first, uh, thank you both. This is um, this is my first time talking about the book with humans who don't have to live with me and hear me read <laughs> page proofs out loud So uh, for days on end. So um, thank you. And yeah, so the question about how I got into ethnomusicology, um, hmm. My bachelor's degree was in history, and I wrote a history thesis. And I talk about this a little bit in the prologue. I wrote a history thesis about dance, but it was you know, a history department. It was a history thesis. I also happened to be a double major, but very much by sort of not 
accident, but I already had taken the courses. So I got the degree in music. And this was all at the University of Chicago, which um, I think was the kind of environment where faculty from different departments would talk to each other about their students. And, you know, not, not that that's unique to any place, but I think in the division of humanities, that was common. And my advisor for my bachelor's thesis, George Chauncey, happened to meet an anthropologist who worked in the music department, Martin Stokes. And I was approached by this person who taught ethnomusicology. It's worth noting that despite getting a bachelor's degree in ethno, I had, sorry, a bachelor's degree in the music department, I had never heard of ethnomusicology at that point. Um, so to, to your, I guess, big question, I don't know that I was drawn to it so much as it it drew me like it, it was, it felt like a place. Um, it felt like an opportunity to combine these different pieces of my artistic and intellectual life. Um, I did not know at the time how rooted in sort of colonial epistemologies it was. So like, I, I think what, what drew me to it then may not have actually been what it became for me. But that's that's the short version. Um, that's my journey to to academia, and I will say I call myself an accidental academic a lot, and maybe that's like false modesty. But I truly don't really know what I'm doing here most days, and I'm I, I often tell my students I'm building the plane as I fly it because that's what it feels like. So, yeah, this book is in many ways I think a reflection of that journey. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a sentiment that a lot of us agree with. And I think it should be articulated more often about building the plane as you fly it in academia. It's very ad hoc. Um, <laughs> so thank you for sharing that. Um, let's get into your book, which I'm really excited about. So what's the story of the book? How did you begin writing? Because it covers so much of your life and and so much of a historical period. It's, it's so, it's just... It's it's gorgeously woven into your own personal life, your own experiences. So, yeah, I do want to get to know what the process of that long process of writing and researching was was like. Yeah, uh, you know, I I'm sure if you asked me this question a month ago, or if you ask it a month from now, my answer might be different. If that says anything, the. The book started with the scene I talk about in chapter one with Sundarama, because that moment where, so I should back up probably and say the the book covers a period from approximately 1930 to the present, and it sort of tracks like how the dancer came to s- symbolically represent India like both in the Indian context and the South Asian context, but also globally. And so in the very first chapter, there's a scene that um, is actually from my dissertation field work, where I was doing research on a dance style called Kuchipudi, and my dissertation is a critical history of Kuchipudi. I was at a dance school in Chennai, and one of my teachers showed me this film clip. And that's really where the book began. So I, there's like a brief mention of that clip in my dissertation, but I didn't really know what I was looking at at that point. So the book 
in some ways started there and then like expanded both like forwards and backwards from that moment where I'm trying to understand why this woman who's dancing on screen um, is somebody who my dance teacher at the time both wanted me to see, but he didn't actually want me to think about the woman in the scene. He wanted me to notice the, the man in the scene. And as a dancer and as a woman in that moment, I wanted to know about her. And it was just this really interesting, like cognitive dissonance of who are you supposed to see as a dancer and who are you not? And I think that that moment was like the beginning and the chapters after um, are very much like a product of trying to trace that chronologically into the present and the very last thing I wrote for the book was uh, the epilogue where I'm thinking about like what it means to think about womanhood and performance in the contemporary moment. And then Priyanka Chopra got married and I had to change her name. <laughs> but uh, no, I mean, jokes aside, it's I feel like I could keep adding to this book in so many ways because it's it's very recursive where it's kind of like returning to the same archive, returning to the same spaces and finding new things, which, yeah, I, I hope, I hope I get a chance to sort of update, update my take on a lot of these things in 10 years, because it's, it's, it's taken me 10 years to write this book and think in another 10 years, it will be something else too. Your own voice is so integral to the text, um, and it, in fact, it becomes a thread uh, through which we experience the disparate spaces and temporalities that you cover. Uh, yet, your book is not an autoethnography, and you actively contest that category. You write that you resist the tendency of ethnography to turn the self into a field that is constantly vulnerable to mining and extraction. Just the way you phrased that was so powerful to me. You instead suggest that your experiences and that of your interlocutors exist on what you call a dynamic continuum. So could you tell us a little bit uh, about why you contest the categorization of your work as autoethnographic and what does a dynamic continuum in the context of your own work mean? Sure. So I have a mentor who actually said to me upon reading that section you just quoted to me that this would be the question or the the stance that would shape the rest of like the next 10 years of my intellectual life which feels really big uh i don't i i don't know what she means and maybe i'll figure it out <laughs> but the the i have never understood to be quite honest why my work was described or defined as autoethnographic it has constant it has consistently come up in in my conference presentations where, you know, a person in the audience, usually a white person in the audience will ask me a question and, and will frame what I'm doing as autoethnographic, even as they're studying things that are very similar to mine and topic, they never have to think about their positionality. So their work is just ethnographic. And in the, in the introduction, I think I, I might over explain this a bit, but this has been, a, this has followed me throughout my career. And I started to realize that part of what Kiran Narayan was saying in, in the 90s, or at late 80s, actually, about how native is the native is, this is the new version of that, to some degree. Auto, when applied to work like mine, allows 
allows ethnography to remain an unmarked category that doesn't necessarily require positionality or I I would say self-reflexivity, which I believe all ethnography requires in order to be done ethically. And so the dynamic continuum to me is an awareness that what it means to be self-reflexive in any space is an awareness of like other relationships that shape that space. And so for me to be uh, aware of my positionality or for me to be acknowledging my access points as an Indian American, as a Brahmin woman, as somebody who's located in in a U.S. academy uh, setting is going to be very different than, say, somebody with perhaps some of those identifiers, but based in, for example, Singapore. Like it's it's always shifting. And I guess my big like my big sum up to that question is if my work is autoethnographic, then all work should be autoethnographic. Which might sound really arrogant and I don't mean for it to. I just think that too easily white ethnographers get the get the chance to sound like they are somehow like their position is unmarked and I, I reject that. I think that, especially in ethnomusicology, this is a problem that I've, I've noticed throughout my career, and I feel like there needs to be more attention paid to what it means to study the other and, and how you negotiate that, that relationship with, um, with ethics, with integrity. And so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm never, I'm never, I'm not to say that autoethnographic practices or methods are not a real thing. I just, those were not the methods I was adopting. So I, and I'm not sure, to be honest, how one adopts what could be called autoethnographic methods in the context of studying performance without acknowledging that your aesthetic principles, you know, what you're bringing to bear on your analysis deserve scrutiny. So. No, that was uh, really insightful. And thank you so much for sharing um, the dilemmas that you were yourself working through, because I think it gives us a lot to think about. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, It's a complicated question for me. It remains a complicated question. And I felt, I felt a little uncomfortable with the, like the, how hard I felt like I had to come down on that in the introduction. Um, but I also should add, I am not the only person who's tried to make this criticism stick. Rhea Srinivasan was talking about this 10 years ago in her work. Uh, Elizabeth Chin, who I cite in that section in the book, was has also talked. It's, it's something that I think especially follows women of color who do ethnography. So I'm just going to call what I do ethnography. That feels more, yeah. I don't think I need my own category. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, there's so many times we forget that knowledge production is also happening in these big academic institutions that are also struggling with issues of like racism, sexism, all of these things are following us around. Not just, we're not just writing about them, we're also experiencing them. So I think that's a good reminder of that fact. Um, But to move from uh, the, this conversation around autoethnography to add the actual media objects that you study, which I absolutely loved, first of all. So the book makes so many careful investments in aesthetics, right? You talk about, uh, and the methodological 
approach then to how you look at films, songbooks, which I loved. And because it's, it carries such a lovely like meaning in the book, clothing, musical instruments. And I especially love how you use songbooks, like I was saying, uh, paying close attention to not just the printed lyrics, but the imagery and how the book circulated. Um, and one of my favorite parts in the book is how you write about your mother's collection uh, of these songbooks. And in fact, I, I love every time that you bring up your mother in, in the it's it's with so much care, generosity, love and, and all of those lovely things. And, and I love the way you know, it's, it's just so nice to see women write women like that. It's it's with generosity and care. And I love that. So could you please speak to how uh, this treatment of these media objects uh, relates to um, how you engage with corporeal aesthetics uh, of being a dancer? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think these media objects became markers along the way for me. Uh, to see them as talking to each other was was. I think a way of stitching together a longer narrative um, and to see that none of these cultural forms exist in in a vacuum. When it came to the songbooks in particular, I will say that I found uh, to, to the point about speaking about my mother, I say this in the acknowledgements that she passed away suddenly as, as I was starting to write this book. And so a lot of this project emerged in sort of the aftermath of that. And as a process of recovery and, all, you know, when someone passes away, you see their whole life, like you see it sort of like a wide angle lens. And so I found these, you know, these things, I found songbooks, I found, um, you know, I found like little cassette tapes that she saved. I found, I found all kinds of just like paraphernalia and trying to understand how women like her, migrants of that era, understood dance and music. Why was it so integral to their like understandings of self? And so songbooks, I think in terms of like the corporeal, they it very it very clearly said to me, especially as I was able to understand the role that songbooks played, and the role that like media representations of womanhood played more more generally in making it okay for women of a certain social station to feel like they could also see themselves as participants in like a public culture and i think that songbooks are maybe the most obvious form of that because they brought the film into the home and the fact that they did did so through practices that were still seen as like literary. So it was still elevated. The language was incredibly coded as, you know, caste driven, Brahminical, the, the term in Telugu is grandikam, right? So it was this like very specific dialect that, um, that Brahmin families could feel comfortable emulating. But I mean, I would argue even otherwise, like the photos, like the, the establishment of music as beauty, a music as a corp- corporealized, feminized beauty all happens through these media objects. And I mean, that's, that's, I mean, this is the era of print media, like at, all of that to me, like combines and collides and it makes it, and maybe that's like too 
too like Lacanian or something, but it's like, <laughs> I really do believe that like you, I look at the way that my grandparents thought about the songbooks that they brought home from the cinema. They would learn the songs and they would teach the songs to their daughter. Like, how is that not, how is that not telling maybe the, maybe the hierarchies that we have historicized up until this point were not as rigid as we understood them to be. And, and I mean, Cast wise, of course, that's that's like a very messy. That's a very messy underestimation from from my point of view. But it's it's worth thinking about how these media objects made it possible for people to see themselves as part of a cultural context, and one that they wanted to produce even on their own terms. Yeah, I think that was um, as articulate as you are in the book, Ramya, which is very articulate. <laughs> like, I feel like every time you speak or write, I'm just, you know, lost in in the in the powerful thoughts that you, your words convey, but also in the beauty of the words themselves. Um, and, you know, in the first chapter of your book, you very beautifully and insightfully delve into how dominant caste performance practices in Andhra are embroiled in a history of othering Curtisan uh, dance histories. Um, performance styles of Bhogam specifically that you talk about, uh, we're introduced to an absent presence or a presence, a present absence um, in the archives of South Indian cinema and that of Sundaramma, who you actually spoke about in an earlier question just now. But could you speak a little bit more about who Sundaramma was and why you found her disappearance, so to speak, puzzling? Um, what does tugging at the analytical threads of silences, shame and honor yield in terms of understanding caste and womanhood in Telugu films and performance cultures more broadly? Yeah, so Sundarama is like a ghost in my life. I've been chasing her for almost more than a decade now. And she feels so familiar (laughs) and yet so unknowable. Um, You know, something that I think we can all perhaps agree that media objects allow for is like a parasocial relationship. And with Sundarama, I think part of that, if I'm being honest for myself, was an awareness that that the women who who danced in the early early era of Telugu films all came from these hereditary communities, right? That's like not really a debated point anymore. It, they were the ones who had the training and the ability to to do the things that these film directors wanted them to perform on screen. So I, I know that much about her. I know that more likely than not, even though I, I have no corroborating evidence to this, she came from um, what might have been called a Bogum community. But you know, beyond that, I have nothing. And it just seems so strange considering the prominence of the films that she was that she was featured in. And I will say, I don't think this made it into the books, uh, into the book. I think it maybe made it into a footnote, but I, I found a person who seemed to know her via another actress of the era and who also came from the community. Um, And like, it's turned into this, it's turned into a bit of like a like a treasure hunt where I'm I'm in like YouTube comments, especially during the pandemic, which is where a lot of the final sort of writing and editing for this manuscript occurred. There was a lot of time, you know, in virtual spaces. 
And there was an interesting sort of community that formed around trying to locate her and women like her. I I will say that the fact that she is an enigma in and of itself is, is telling. And I think it's what has allowed so many people to write about women on behalf of women with, you know, with, with the lack of information that's actually circulating that it becomes like a, like a blank canvas for people to imagine. So, but your, to your question about what does tugging at those analytical threads allow for me to do? For me, it definitely allowed for an understanding of the sorts of aesthetics of womanhood that are reproduced in the dance traditions that I was trained in. So shame, silence, these are, and I talk about this, I think, in the final chapter, these are the ways that we are trained to affect desire as classical Brahmin girl, Indian American dancers. That is how we are taught to express. And I'm thinking in particular about a piece that many Kuchipudi dancers will know if they're listening, which is Krishna Shabdam. There's an entire sequence when you are approaching you know, the object of your desire and your eyes are meant to be downcast. Your body language is meant to be doubting and closed. Like that is that is what was modeled for us was shame as desire. But I don't know that what, I don't know that I agree with the elision of shame and shyness, but that is what's happened, right? So being shy is now being ashamed. And, and so I think pulling at those threads allows for women to think about how they understand their own expression of desire, how they express, um, love, how they express consent. I mean, these are the sorts of things that I found myself really pulling apart is if if I've been taught that being ashamed is how I show that I feel comfortable in a, in a certain social environment, then what are the dangerous implications of that type of social conditioning for, for young women? So uh, to answer the question very directly, I, I, I hoped that some of pulling at this would un- dismantle some facets of rape culture. So thank you for like that answer. I was like very much agreeing with you at all points in time. So uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that answer. Um, you make such a key intervention um, in performance studies, especially in the understanding of visual cultures. Uh, at the same time, your work relies on thinking through voice, sound, sonic scapes of performances. This comes through in a way that you write about the dancer's body and how it becomes severed from its voice um, and the rise of the uh, playback uh, singing historically. How does the splitting of the dancer's body and the voice come again, um, come to gain significance in understanding the politics of gender and nationalism? Um, could you also speak to us about the sonicscapes, were, how the sonicscapes were critical to the understanding um, of cultures, of caste-based and racialized embodiment that continue to fashion Indian citizenship. I should admit that the very first or the earliest and the longest working title for this book was not The Dancer's Voice, but was Mythical Quarters in Modern Wife. So even in like the earliest phases of this project, I saw a doubling that was happening for women who 
you know, who understood themselves as Indian, who identified as Indian or Indian American and or Indian, despite where they were located in, in the world, uh, the hyphenated piece of it was always too, was always important too. And so on some level, turning the dancer into a symbol of visual and racialized beauty in the post-colonial period has, this is my argument, has consequences for how we understand her symbolic power. And, you know, in the case of, of the splitting, I, I think if we think about how women's voices are managed, we will realize that this is not specific to the Indian dancer. It is the more you know, forgive the, the forgive the nod to the current discourse on Meghan Markle, but I can't help myself because it feels relevant. Like the more the more saturated publicly a woman's body becomes, the less she has control over who she really is and what what like her you know what her view of the world, her thoughts, what her you know her politics, whatever it might be, like she loses that agency. And I know it was a controversial move perhaps to rely on Hannah Arendt's work, but I found when I found myself looking to find a way to bring body and voice back together, she was one of the primary theorists who, who thought about body and voice as, as things that worked in concert to produce citizenship, to produce, you know, sovereign, sovereign being. And I could perhaps go on a bit of a rant here about like the limits of liberal democracies, but I won't. The short answer to your question is that I think that if we understand how the dancer becomes a gendered representational practice, then we can start to understand how that then limits her agency and how that then shapes the politics of gender. I mean, she becomes a representational force for nationalist practice, um, but her, you know, her her gendered credibility deficit still follows her in her ability to to speak for herself. Uh, and then the second part of your question about the sonicscapes. So the the idea that one can hear cast and one can hear race is perhaps not like a, a difficult it's not a, a difficult thing for us the three of us to to consider I think we we listen for we listen for cast in language practices I talk about this a little bit in the first chapter it definitely uh, shapes how we think of citizenship and what it means. And I, I definitely, like I found myself falling down a rabbit hole when it came to thinking about language and immigration, because I found all of this, I found all of these laws that were passed in the 20th century in the U.S. that really placed a premium on, on an immigrant's ability to engage in a certain way with language and specific languages were marked as like sort of more, more mobile than others. Uh, in terms of music, though, and what qualifies as music, and this is like a big, <laughs> this is a big axe for me to grind, if I'm being honest. One of my big fights over the years has been getting ethnomusicologists based in the United States to listen to dance and understand that dancers are musicians too. 
but it's you know what 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 is understood as music, what is classified as music in in the U.S. or Anglo-American or Euro-American white supremacist context is very narrowly defined. So, like thinking about sound in a more capacious way is, I think, important to see and hear how caste is coded and how race is coded and. Specifically, I think around um, the sorts of music that dancers can dance to, and what what kinds of musical investments dancers make, what kinds of musical direction they are responsible for. I could say a lot about this, having you know having been on the other side, but figuring out a way to translate what I knew as a dancer and the musical abilities I had to have as a dancer into like what what the Western Academy or what the American Academy thinks is sound and thinks is music has really at moments driven me a little insane and I'm still working on it because I don't know that I'm there yet. But it's it's a it's a type of listening that dancers know how to do and trying to explain it to people who see sound and movement as separable, which they are simply not in the context that I'm talking about. It's yeah, I'll, I'm working on it still. But in the book, I I definitely point to this like the sorts of sounds, uh, tam like you know timbre. I talk to I talk about genres of music and different registers. So I'll stop there. <laughs> that was great, and also I think the one vignette that will always stay with me from your book is that when uh, it was you performing, right? And there were these recorded uh, sounds of the, what do you call it, Gajalu. Gajalu, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, that people were a little upset by the fact that uh, the sound was recorded in the background music. Do you, can yes. you? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, so the thing that, the thing that's always puzzled me about that moment, um, so and for listeners who I performed in San Francisco and I used music that had been recorded during a live performance that I had given, but like it was mic'd. So the singer and the, uh, the Murdungist and, you know, the, the orchestra was mic'd, but because I was on the stage, you could still hear like my feet on the stage. And in moments you could hear the gajalu, the bells. And what I will never quite understand is that even in studio recordings, sometimes people would use bells like they that's part of like the ensemble but the idea that the feet were also there seemed to really stress out people who saw me perform that day and it was such a puzzling experience because these were all people who really understood themselves as rasikas like they all really like understood dance and they appreciated dance but they didn't like hearing the dancer in the sonic in the sonic material. And the best I could say is that that to them was just against all of the accepted rules of what dance music was supposed to sound like. And, but yet, yet I will say that I have recordings where it's clear that somebody has brought bells into the recording booth and is using them because, well, there's a lot more I could say there about like using the talalu, which 
a dance master might use and how, at least in some recording spaces, you need to have the right equipment to be able to capture that sound without it being like really shrill in the mix. But uh, yeah, it's like the, being able to like capture this, the sound with, um, you know, like sound integrity is a whole, yeah, it's a whole other recording technology conversation, <laughs> slightly off topic. No, that was that was so fabulous. And I'm just sitting here as you were talking about uh, not just hearing music and more like sensing it in other ways, perhaps, and, and performing it in other ways. And I can't help but think of social media. And I'm like, that's exactly what happens. You can quote like music as a way of getting to different kinds of dances, but that's pretty much what people are doing. And, you know, uh, performing a certain kind of step or a dance can be reminiscent of a particular musical genre. And that happens a lot in Bollywood for, you know, the specific steps that you, I was like, I don't know why the Academy is so resistant because other people have caught on to it. Exactly. It's like you don't only hear with your ears. I don't know how to explain this to you. You should have to explain it. We need t shirts. We need t shirts that say you don't only hear with your ears. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. <laughs> yeah, and like, here's the thing, you know, I, I didn't go down this road, but... I do, I think I point to it at the very end of chapter four about like ableist framing of hearing, because I feel like part of what I ran into was a Eurocentric academic understanding of music as sound, and therefore an inability maybe to even leave room for disability studies understandings of like how we hear and what it means to like process or interpret and an embody sound. It is not from, it is not simply sonic. It's simply, it's just not. And yeah, I'll stop there. <laughs> <'Cause>, <laughs> I don't know. It's just one of those things that once you say it, I was like, hi, I feel like I should have known this all along, but how have I not? Like, it's such a, uh, a piercing thing. And I was like, I should have known this. I, why not? Why haven't I thought about this in these terms? But thank you so much for bringing that to us. Um, Again, I, I loved, as I mentioned, your, your your mentions of your mother, and especially in the acknowledgement, something about that really resonated with me. Uh, and you write, the original dancer's voice for me, after all, was hers. I grew up dancing to her voice, as she often sang for me to be able to practice. And I was really struck by this idea of practicing, or the image of you practicing was like something that really stuck with me, and your mom like making you practice. And it was so sweet. I don't know, something about that really resonated. You also mentioned how you were made to watch the movie Swarnakamalam, which I know both you and Sneha have a lot to say about. Uh, I yeah, and we have both watched at least 20 times by now. <laughs> at, at least, yeah. But, but you were made to watch this movie anytime you did not want to practice dance. So it was such a pivotal uh, piece of, you know, media text in your life that like, this is what you need to do. Um, 
I find this instances of intimate and uh, familiar practice, quote unquote, like you're practicing for dance, uh, rather interesting, especially considering the more formal learning that takes place in dance studios. I mean, you mentioned all of these elaborate like rituals you had to do to present to your, uh, you know, uh, dance guru with your father had to come down and present you with like bananas and money and like all of these other things. And that's what I'm so and also the auntie's basements which was a whole oh, other yeah. space yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was so interesting but like these the, these sort of juxtaposed like these different spaces in which the dancers learn how to perform um, and I was wondering how that relates to different performances and what that meant for you because there's so much in there and I really want to explore some of that with you yeah well so I mean I, part of the part of the work I hope this book will go on to do in the world is like clarifying how much of gender comportment requires a disciplining of the body and the voice, of course, but, uh, and how much of it is a performance, no matter the formality of the space. And like the, the thing about, um, Amma, like singing for me is it was, you know, especially if there was no tape recorder, it was just a way to kind of work on a section and have her watch me because she was also my greatest critic. Um, she would like, this is neither here nor there, but like, I used to have to keep her in my peripheral because she would like twitch and it would be distracting. <laughs> <laughs> and I would get so frustrated. I'd be like, I'm not stop. Like, fine. I'm not doing it perfectly or, you know, whatever. And, but it was, it was very much like an awareness. I think at the root of the root of that is an awareness that you're a, a woman's body is always on display, always, like no matter where we are. And I think it's my awareness of that, my awareness that like I knew like whenever I knew that someone was watching, it was a mode that you are encouraged to like fall into, slip back into, or I don't know, put on. And so there's that, but there's also, you know, the use of like, what does it mean to be seen? What does it mean to like see yourself being seen? And the idea that media texts are somehow part of that story, like they're part of that experience. So Arnakamalam, I would be very curious if like anybody else has this like this relationship with Swarnakamalam because it was so specific to the group of like the community I belong to. Like if you watch the film, Sneha, you might remember this scene. In the scene, they name Vampurichina Satyam. Like there's a scene where they actually name my teacher's teacher. Like the idea that this is a fictional, whatever, this is a fictional thing, but they're still referring to the like the name in Kuchipudi dance. And they name his school. So it's, I, there's just, there's this incredible trafficking that's happening between like real life, performed life, media life. They all like, not to, not to try and be too like Dickinsonian about it, but I feel like it's all related and they're all sort of like shaping each other. And part of what I was trying to get to with with the reference to uh, twice behaved behaviors is that it's the awareness that like, and this is something Stuart Hall talks about and bell hooks pulls on. It's that identity is constituted through representation, not outside of it. 
I don't believe that, like we know who we are until you know this is sort of like psych, you know psych developmental developmental psychology but I think people see themselves in others and then they emulate right so it becomes like a feedback loop and I very much see media texts and performance practices and familial spaces all sort of wrapped up wrapped up in that process so through the book you think and write through so many intersecting and overlapping conceptual layers uh, one such instance of really so many is when you write about the heteropatriarchal order that braids together what it means for a woman to become a dancer and what it means for her to become a wife um you say that and i quote a desire for happiness is what brings many women to dance and then later you say part of this happy life involves finding a spouse who desires a dancer as a wife end quote as you showed through the course of your book this desire indexes the near total reversal of the kind of stigma dancing held when the predominant source of its learning and acquisition was hereditary courtesan families and in many ways dancing and performing respectable femininity are carefully intertwined but moving beyond you also note that dancing is also a real embodied source of happiness cultivation of the self perhaps just joy so how does one reckon with the sometimes contradicting sometimes overlapping affects and motivations of classical dance yeah you know this the question earlier sort of reminds me of the question earlier about what i see the dynamic continuum being for uh, ethnographic access or um voicing and i think this part of part of that complexity or the shifting logics that you just pointed out the contradictory logics you just pointed out are are, are i think captured in in the way that some women that i've danced with over the years have talked about like being able to to dance because it makes them more eligible i don't know if i'm being really honest i don't know how many of the women i i danced with were as um clued in to the caste histories that run beneath all of all of this uh, the fact that the the sort of appropriation or the refashioning of of bogum traditions or traditions that were marked as not brahmin right so were from communities that remain marginalized in in contemporary andhra to something that brahmin women could do to feel beautiful and feel desirable i feel like for for some women it is simply a matter of feeling like their body is their own you know and and i i i joke about it i joke about how my mom would twitch when she would watch me dance but i i think about that a lot I think about like what does it mean to like not be able to have your body to not, I mean this is talking about this in 2022 sitting in the state of Georgia I can tell you what it means I can t- I can very clearly tell you what it means to not have bodily autonomy or to sense that you don't have that but you know in a, in an expressive setting I think it's the belief that like your ability to feel how you feel and say it loud and clear is somehow not socially acceptable. And so I think I I struggle with I struggle with this because I it the the contradictions that you point to, the injustice that that underscore those contradictions 
have been challenging for me to negotiate as a dancer. I don't know, I don't know how to dance in, in public anymore, for example, despite all the years of training. I don't know how to go into public spaces the way I used to, knowing what I know. And so I, I mean, I still practice at home. And so there's that. But I think the, the thing you point to about how these heteropatriarchal discourses have been sort of layered and compound each other now, where there are families who believe that they could translate their daughter's ability to look like a dancer, whether she's dancing or not, the way she carries her body in a social space that they know that that will make her more desirable. And marriage remains a capitalist enterprise, right? So it's, I think it's all of those things. But, you know, there's a story, an anecdote that I've thought of so many times over the years. And it's actually why I have a photo of uh, Bhanumati holding a cup of tea in chapter two. I had um, a previous partner's father who loved the idea that I was a dancer. He wanted his he wanted his son to be with a woman who'd been trained in dance. And he would always tell me about this advertisement that he saw when he was younger, growing up in India, of a dancer bringing a man a cup of tea. And so there's something about that image, about this, you know, Indian man who grew up in like the 1940s, 50s, much like my family, my, my parents, who saw that as an example of what he wanted for his son. And, and that story, like that story has stuck with me because I think there's something about dancerhood that is a, like a direct line to wifehood, which I think points to what people, some people, some men, perhaps some Brahmin men, let's be very clear, some men um, think that dancerhood does to women's agency, how it puts them in a position of like, servitude perhaps and yeah i i i've seen it around me i've sort of been like passively aware actively aware of the fact that i have many former dance mates who didn't really start to feel beautiful as indian women until they really allowed themselves to think of themselves as dancers so there's also a complexity there around being a brown woman in america and how you can feel beautiful. And it's, I'm not saying that it isn't still rooted in deep injustice and casteism. That's, you know, I'm not trying to like celebrate it unequivocally, but I do know and I do hear my dance mates, for, you know, past and present talk about their own self, sense of self and how it was sort of formative. And yet I know that being able to like feel those, not to quote Elle Woods, but to quote Elle Woods, like, <laughs> endorphins make you happy <laughs> and dances it's it, it brings your heart rate up if i i have so much to say about how i think dance like the days where i don't feel like i have the emotional reserves to practice dance and so i go for a run instead that tells you something like dance requires it's like therapy like it requires you to feel your feelings it requires you to process them and it's like psycho, you know, it's psychosomatic and just turning it into exercise is perhaps less therapeutic, but you know, that's me. Like, I, I do think that there are people for whom it is simply just my body is powerful and therefore I can feel powerful too. And I, I've watched over the many years I've been her, 
I've been her student. I've watched my guru process deep loss and grief and trauma and just, you know, life. I've watched the way that dance has allowed her to move through life and her relationship to it and the way it allows her to access an elevated state that gives her a sense of purpose in this world. And yeah, I, I just, there's a lot of discourse lately about like, who should dance, who should get to dance, who shouldn't dance because of the caste histories at the heart of all of this. And, you know, I, I know it's like, I am, I was raised Brahmin. Um, my family is Brahmin. I, I know that it is, but one person's perspective to say that I think telling women that they can't or shouldn't dance because of their caste identity is like hilariously circular. Like it's like the patriarchy felt this way in the late 19th century, right? <laughs> which is which is how, you know, how it became something that women of a lower social station or, or um, you know, an oppressed caste did. And so now to come all the way back around and like play these purity politics and say that only those women should dance. I don't know. That just doesn't feel like a solution to me. But and it's also interestingly, mostly men who are deciding whether or not women should dance. And I, I'd like for us to just like maybe take a beat and think about that more. But yeah, I these are these are complicated conversations that I think we need to be able to have about like why women should or shouldn't do something and who gets to decide that for them. Um, but it's yeah, I think those conversations need to be had with care. That was yeah. Thank you for for sharing that and and yeah. It's 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 really needed to have a space to have these very complicated uh, conversations and and I think that's what your book does in so many ways and one of the more compelling things that your book does is sort of draw on those relationships between race and caste which you were sort of alluding to in the we have been talking about it and 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 everything and how it's shaped by you know processes of colonialism settler settler colonialism and and transnational migrations um the moments in which this relationship uh between race and caste um emerged in subtle and unsubtle ways depending on who is looking, hearing, and witnessing these moments, uh, were, were moments of uh, translating capital, right? Uh, of capital, of cultural ca- uh, cultural capital, caste capital, and heteronormative uh, capital. And I was really struck by some of the examples that, that you know, some of these vignettes that you mentioned. And one of those moments was when um, you bring your friend, Erin, uh, who's, who's white, uh, into the dance studio uh, uh, with you, and your instructor sort of asks you if he's or when your instructor is sort of asking you if he's you know uh, uh, looking like a woman when he's performing in in this event organized by uh, a US-based organization and and you're struck by that moment of vulnerability of like oh he's he's asking me this question am I supposed to like say what and and these these sort of not moments of rupture but moments of potential like possibility and potential like I don't know what else, but it's it's these moments in which caste needs to be translated to a primarily white audience, right? In terms of like, can I articulate this as capital? And this work of translating capital is something that you, it, it's really woven very like wonderfully in your work. And, and I really want to get, uh, you know, hear your thoughts on the, on these uh, moments of translating capital. Yeah, that's such a great question. Um, you know, 
I think as as I'm hearing you as I'm hearing you say all this, the my discomfort with the use of the term diaspora and my desire to talk more in terms of transnationalism is related to this, what you're describing, right? Because the reality is that these are transnational flows that allow for this translation to occur. They couldn't occur if these weren't stabilized symbols in their own contexts. And I'm very cautious about bringing conversations of caste and race together because I think that's happening a lot lately in ways that are not helpful for they're just it's not it's not helpful. I I thought about this a bit last night in preparation for our conversation today and it's not as if white supremacy has not shaped India and how Indians understand race. And equally, there's no way of understanding the migration of Indians to the United States without understanding a history of caste. So like those both exist. They cannot be collapsed into each other. Race and caste are not the same. Uh, They intersect for sure. And so to your point about translating, I think, yeah, that moment with Erin will always stand out to me because it became clear that my guru wanted to impress her. And I was like, why do you care about this basic white girl that I just accidentally brought with me this one day? She was in India um, and wanted to come with me. And so I I let her come with me. And like she knew nothing about any of this, but he wanted her to think it was like, he wanted her to think highly of our dance. And I have, you know, I, I have... I've thought so much about over the years why the elders around me cared so much about white approval of our traditions. And it's it's the same colonial hangover, isn't it? It's this it's like goodness, it's the history of ethnomusicology on some level. Like it's the desire for belonging to the canon, um, for being taken as seriously. It's it's why people do this irritating thing of saying that the Trimurtis, the uh, Sneha, you might know what I'm referring to, like the, there's this desire to say that there's like three classical composers, three Brahmin men who are equivalent to like Bach, Beethoven, Mozart. It's just like, it's this constant need to emulate this other model of legibility, of cultural, um, you know, of cultural power. And, and maybe that translation Maybe the translation you're pointing to is an example of that. Unfortunate, you know, it's an unfortunate example of that that epist- that epistem that sees that things are only valuable if they're valuable if they're valued by the colonizer. But it's your question about seeing it in terms of translation was really powerful to me, and I thought about it a lot. And I do think that I hope that what switching to thinking about transnationalism will allow us to do is to, I'm not saying that diaspora doesn't have like meaningful like analytical possibilities, but I don't know that it is adequate to explain caste race power that allows for the kinds of mobility that, that we're describing about Dan. That there's, there's a photo I use in the prologue. I had doubts about using any photos of myself because I, I don't know. I think that's gauche to use photos of yourself in your book. So the only ones that I used are ones when I'm like under the age of 10. 
But there's one, and I, I think about this photo a lot because it's um, the one performing at my parent, at my mom's, um, like an event for NASA for her employer. And it has, you know, it's very clearly, it's like on the NASA, like publicity header. And I, I thought about that photo over the years because I'm like, why would that have been a NASA publicity photo? But I think what you're pointing to about these sorts of translations is also a desire to be able to signpost some sort of cosmopolitanism, multiculturalism, you know, pick, pick a firm, I suppose. But it that, that is also a two-way street, right? So everyone's using everyone in those scenarios, to your point, Sneha, I think. No, that's absolutely true. And that's primarily how anthropology gets started in the colonial Indian context is that, mm. and, and years later, me reading Dumont, I was like, oh, his work does not like say as much because he's drawing only from Vedic and, and Brahminical records. And, and that becomes like, who were the original translators of Indian civilization and everything? And there was, you're right, like Sneha said, there's a lot to be gained from doing that translation work as well, right? So that becomes this sort of uh, uh, wobbly field, I guess, of, of, how, of how you frame your own capital vis-a-vis another uh, onlooker who's viewed with power. Absolutely. And, you know, I know I might be like, I haven't really figured it. I haven't found my way through this project yet, but I've been working on a project where I'm like sort of tracing the representation of yogic men and dancing women in the photo anthropology of the mid 19th century, mid to late 19th century. So like the people of India collections and all like Orientals, races and tribes, all of those collections, because I think there's something there. Like they would hire these translators, literally they would hire these translators who are locals, but also clearly had to be able to speak English and were somehow embedded in the British administrative practice. And then they would just send them out to take these. I mean, it was a census, of course. This was after 1857. They knew what they were doing. They needed to, like, get a handle. Um, and, and so I think, like, the representation that we see, visual representation in particular, becomes really important for how Brahminical epistemologies became so tethered to like the British anthropological machine because you, you know, you, for lack of a better way to describe it, the belief that Brahmins were somehow like the, the intellects of these communities made them perhaps the people that administrators felt comfortable asking to describe the rest of the community so it's their gaze that gets compounded by yeah by the anthropological project no that's that's so absolutely uh, yeah that's your book is so short and like sneha was saying the other day it really packs a punch though so you get all it's all it's all it, you get so much in just this little space i yeah it's so I mean, hard i just wanted to say that it's a testimony to how beautifully it's written that i read uh, the whole book um, on my kindle and uh, i can barely finish novels on my kindle to be honest but i read it like cover to cover and i just felt like it was uh, so compact, concise, elegantly written, but really packs a punch in terms of ideas. And there's so much going on. There's so many like layers that you know like speak back to one another. And I like the fact that it was not chronological but thematic because very often the sub themes spoke to 
um, the other chapters and yeah it's just like a lot of questions and lots of provocations I think that was great yeah. Oh, I love that. I, I'll be, I'll be honest. There was a small part of me that was scared. It was too short, but I didn't know what oh. else. To do. I was like, I don't even know what to. Like, I guess I could try and shoehorn another chapter in there, but like, I don't really oh, want perfect. to. Yeah. <laughs> it was great. It was perfect. Yeah, I already gushed about it with Sneha. I'm gushing about it here. I can't, yeah, I can't wait. To, I've already like used this in my mind as citation for so many things that I wanted to say. I was like, okay, now I just need to cite Ramya and, and no one's going to about these things. It's fine. Yeah, I mean, one day I somebody's going to have to tell me if I like came out swinging a little too hard on autoethnography. But honestly, I think I, I actually think I toned it down a bit by the time it went to press. Can I ask if the, the person who uh, said to you that, you know, this was going to be quite defining of your future projects, was it Patricia Richards? Because I'm thinking that they've been, that she and her collaborators have been thinking about autoethnography and ethnography for like a long time, right? No, I mean, she has been one of the people who has been telling me not to, not to, not to be afraid to name the racialized distinctions that are at play. Um, and sort of the unmarked category, like the deracinated categories that I think is she's one of them, but no, the person who told me that was, I mentioned her in the acknowledgements. Her name is Kirsten uh, Buick and she's an art historian. And I mean, she just, it's so like the two mentors I mentioned in the acknowledgements are both African-American. And I think it's, it's perhaps worth noting that like my ability to come to terms with the model minority, like white aspirational stuff that really kind of weighed me down in the process of doing this work. The people who helped me really work through the, the parts of this that are, are, I guess, critical race theories were, you know, were both African-Americans working through this stuff a generation ahead of me. And there's, there's something to be said about the fact that, that, um, that autoethnography or ethnographic ethics remain this just I don't know if it's just music studies that's like really behind the times and it's not meant to be a criticism just an observation that music has had a music as a discipline has had a difficult time dealing with its colonial legacies I I think part of that really shows up in this ethnographic stuff that I'm I'm pointing to but no, it, Patricia has been one of the people who's been like, it's okay, you can say that. <laughs> but that it helps that she's technically my boss now. So my boss said, it's fine. <laughs> yeah, she's the new director for the Institute for Women's Studies here. So Yeah. That was, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you have that space in which you're able to explore this with mentors who... It's, it's lovely. It's nice to hear that in academia. Um, okay, this is a very selfish question. It's probably a little like, it doesn't really matter, but it's it's something that for very selfish reasons I'm asking. I noticed that the Disney princess Jasmine sort of bookends your text. She shows up in both the prologue and the epilogue and with a modified image of somebody else's interpretation of Indianizing um, Jasmine, who is... 
obviously not Indianized in the original. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of there, but not really, right? I, I bring this up for like, it belongs, it has a special place in my heart too. I grew up watching for all of its problematics and everything, right? Because that's something you also wrestle with. It's it's problematic. And, 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 and we, of course, have very li- different like cultural and linguistic fields which structure our relationship to to this mythical uh, representation of of. I was like, yeah, that's the closest to uh, a non-white. <laughs> never again. I've never related to Snow White, so that's the closest. Like, I guess it comes. I guess the earrings and the jewelry make sense, <laughs> and the hair yeah. is dark and black. So that's the closest I can come to that. <laughs> he has a tiger named Raja. Like, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, you know, there's a spectrum of relatability, I suppose, (laughs) in in those representations. But can you talk about some of these racialized, gendered politics of of this image that became significant to your voice? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, Jasmine is, speaking of recursive fields, um, she is definitely one of them. That whole movie and the new, like, live action remake has its own uh, examples, I think. The fact that they included this Bollywood sequence in, in the new film, the new adaptation of it. Yeah, so Jasmine was also very formative for me. She That movie came out when I was 10. And as I, as I know in... In the book, it, it was very important for sort of my early racial consciousness, even though I, ne- I never would have thought about her that way at that time. Of course, I was 10. It was Texas. I'm, pre- I'm pretty sure I thought I was white. I don't know that I had like any other. I don't know that anyone ever talked to me about. Although the census categories when I was growing up were, I, I think I still had to check East Indian. And then later it shifted to uh, I was a Pacific, I was like part of the Pacific Islanders. I think they, I think I thought India was an island. We'll talk about Texas public education at a later date. Um, but the Jasmine has something I didn't really stop to think about. And I, I, I only really realized as I was writing was that Jasmine is the only Disney princess that does not have a solo. She only sings with Aladdin. And though though marriage is, of course, an important and constant theme throughout all of the Disney films for women, it is not the primary plot in any other in any other of the films. Her the the like the obsession with the fact that she has to get married is very specific to this film and i don't think is distinct from the subtexts or maybe not even subtext just the texts that that film was meant to convey about the fact that indian or brown women you know loose orientalist <laughs> orientalized women have to are are living in patriarchal societies like that was that was the message and you know, over the years, I've I've realized like Raja, the fact that they named the tiger Raja, uh, but the fact that Akraba was meant to look kind of like the Taj Mahal or Agra, like these were all like you know whoever was behind designing the, the imagery for the film for the movie 
for the animation, like clearly was drawing on this like mixed and matched understanding of the Middle East and India as if they were one thing, which to do with that information, what you will about the American understanding of geography, uh, or at least in representational practices, it's, I still find that I still find Jasmine such an interesting and puzzling character because on the one hand, she's a rebellious, but on the other hand, it's, you know, she lands in, in these situations where her entire future is based on whether or not she marries somebody. It's, I still haven't really untangled that, which probably says, you know, a lot about my own positionality in in these narratives. I will say too that um, there's a scene where she dances, right, for Jafar. And one of my students actually pointed it out to me recently that they made, she dresses in red, that like they have her dressed in red in that scene. It's meant to be seductive. It's so... There's still like I I still have students who are what probably born in the 90s at this point who are watching this film and finding themselves in the US context. And I don't what does that say? <laughs> what does that say about the dearth of representational media on the one hand, but also like the sad perhaps timelessness of what Jasmine means especially as an animated character? So I, I think the thing that I will stick with is somebody um, somebody pointed out to me that because she is never singing by herself, she gets dubbed by scholars who have written about her, the silent princess. And I think that that really spoke to me in the context of, of the book and the project of the voice and what it means to like think of the voice as an actual voice versus like a sense of agency or, you know, lack thereof. Yeah, that's uh, oh, thank you for that entertaining me. <laughs> yeah, I was oh, feeling uh, sorry, sorry, I was feeling a bit of FOMO because I have not uh, quite watched Aladdin and I have no sense of any of the references, but I was chuckling at Raja. I think I watched some of it while reading uh, Sides Orientalism for the first time, like in grad school, and I was like, why is this like such a big thing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the thing that I didn't mention, I probably should have. And I think I say this in the in the prologue. She she's one of the only princesses where they use a different voice for her singing voice than they do for her speaking voice. In neither case is her the voice someone of whatever Asian Arab descent. Um, I mean, I guess uh, the singing voice is a Filipina who also went on to have a career on Broadway, but her speaking voice is the like a very famous white woman, Marnie Nixon. So. <laughs> I'm not sure why they had to have two different people. I haven't found any real answers to that question. That's so interesting. Years later, when I would be watching the cartoons, the episodic Aladdin, um, a lot of it would be dubbed in Hindi. So I never got any of the context of uh, it was so funny. All of these things would be. And that ha started happening like later on in like the 2000s because I remember watching it in English at an earlier point and then watching it in Hindi. So there was like a shift that happened. It was it was really funny, but that's really funny that you, yeah, the voice also and how that dubbing over the original original uh, voice, that was, that's so funny. Yeah. yeah, I think the politics of dubbing is a whole other 
whole other conversation, voice over voice. Um, but Ramya, this has been such a great conversation, and uh, I feel like I learned a lot when I read the book, but I learned uh, even more uh, during this chat. And uh, Lakshita and I kept saying that it's going to be vibes only, and I felt like it was a lot of vibes. <laughs> So yeah, thanks for taking time out. Uh, I realize that we've like um, kept you chatting about this wonderful book that we just want to hear more and more about. But uh, we've taken up a substantial amount of your time by now. But we can't let you go without uh, without learning more about what you're working on right now and what we can hope to read by you in the near future. Yeah, uh, I guess I have a couple a couple irons in the fire. Is that the that the phrase um the big one is i i'm really hoping i can get get to a place like have being able to bring this book into the world and sort of like call it a day at least sort of about this project famous last words maybe has like let me think about my yoga project more like it's just cleared some space in my brain so i'm hoping that I will be able to turn my focus to that book project. And sort of related to that, I, I've, as I mentioned, the photographic anthropology work that I've been chewing on for like two years, and I'm, I'm hoping that that will be something that I could share with the world in the not too distant future. Yeah, that's great. Love it. Well, thanks again for doing this. And Lakshita, it was so great to co-host with you. And I hope we get to do this more often. Yeah, that was lovely. I enjoyed, thoroughly enjoyed this. (laughs) Yeah. Take care, Ramya.